Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So uh, I know a lot of you guys know this, but uh, I'm a, I'm a math, my day job is I'm a math teacher at a, at a boarding school. I teach there. I work there. And there's a distinction. There's a difference teaching and working. And we live there as a family. And um, so a boarding school is a little bit different, where you, you're around the students a lot. You get to see them doing all kinds of stuff. I and mean, most of it's very good. It's neat. You really get to know them. But you also you get to see them make mistakes. Students make mistakes at boarding schools, especially. You think? Yeah. They're away. They're 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 away from their parents. You see them. You, you know they get caught cheating. They they sneak off campus. They they lie. They you know, and occasionally drugs and alcohol. And I'm not trying to paint a bad picture, but kids make mistakes. And um, at our school, we have what's called an honor committee. There's a group of boys, also a group of girls. And when a kid has had an infraction, made a mistake, they go before the honor committee and explain their case. And they have to explain it fully, and, and they're expected to tell the truth. And then that group, along with the administration, makes a decision about the student's fate, what, what's going to happen to them. Will they, will they stay at the school? Will they be suspended? Just last night, I got a notice there's going to be a boy suspended for five days and another one was withdrawn from the school. I don't know why, but a mistake was made. So those things happen. And, and, and during one of these honor committees, we call them H, HC meetings, honor committee meetings, um, you generally hear three types of, of things as the student is wrapping up their explanation of what they did as they, as they plea for the honor committee to be good to them with their decision of consequence. One of them is just to straight up I'm sorry, and usually it's, I'm sorry, I'm, 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 I'm really, really sorry, I, I won't do this again, I'm, I'm so sorry, and it, you can tell behind that is, and, and please don't expel me from the school. <laughs> you, know, you, could just, you can hear it, uh, even if they don't say it. Second response you often hear is, I regret what I did, and I'm, I'm going to go apologize to that teacher, or that coach, or that, that group of students, whoever, whoever they inf uh, offended, and that's nice to hear. What we like to hear, this is the third response, and you don't hear it very often, is something like, I regret that I made that decision, and I'm going to make some changes in my life, in my social life, perhaps, or in the way that I study, and I'm going to stop procrastinating so that I don't ever wind up in that same situation again. I've learned from this mistake, and I want to become a different person. And when we hear that, we say, all right, that's, that, that kid has decided to make some change. You don't hear it too often. Um, so my first question as we begin here this morning, in light of this, is after this, this illustration, how do we know when someone is truly sorry for an offense that they've committed? How, how, how does someone prove that they're sorry, that they really mean it, and they're not just trying to, to say, well, I, I don't want that consequence? How do we know? Now, occasionally, and this has been in the news quite recently with the, the baseball um, championships and so on, occasionally we'll see celebrities uh, making an apology uh, uh, regarding something they said or did that was offensive to a particular people group or an opposing baseball team. Um, you know, but have you ever heard someone issue a, a forced apology? You, you, it's, it's not particularly uh, impressive. It's, it's kind of like watching me play, play basketball. <laughs> nothing, there's nothing natural, nothing sincere about it. <laughs> Let, let's get this over with. All right. Um, now, for, uh, for Michelle and I, um, as incredibly amazing as we were as young parents, right, yeah, um, we could not train our three little ones, our not-so-little ones now, but our, when they were little, we couldn't train them to, to learn how to actually be truly sorrowful 
We, we couldn't train them to, uh, to be able to get to a point where they genuinely, in their heart, felt bad or remorseful or regretful. That's a matter of the heart. They, that had to be left up to them. We, we, we tried to show them, hey, the importance of saying you're sorry and to think about it. You've made a mistake. Let's go apologize to your brother or sister, whoever. But we couldn't change their heart. That's left up to the individual. Some things are completely left up to the heart of the individual. And today I'd like to look at a story of one man's heart. You may have heard the story before. There's, it's so rich, we could spend weeks on this. But if we could turn to Second Chronicles 33, we're going to look at a man's heart today. The story of King Manasseh is what I'd like to talk about. We'll, I'll break this into, into parts here, but starting in uh, chapter 33, verse 1, 2 Chronicles 33, verse 1, it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Anybody see a problem already? 12 years old, goodness. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. That's the great king Hezekiah, a godly man, a godly king. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images. And he, Manasseh, worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. Shall my name be forever. In other words, no other ones. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also, he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. That's as horrible as it sounds, by the way. Allowing his sons to pass through the fire. He sacrificed them. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh seduced Judah. What an, what an ugly, chilling word that is, huh? Seduced. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And also, Second Kings says a very parallel story to this, but it's got one extra detail, and you don't need to turn there, but in Second Kings 21, it says this as well about King Manasseh. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides his sin, by which he made Judah sin, in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So Manasseh was a mass murderer, too an idolater, a blasphemer, a mass murderer, even a murderer of his own sons. He was greatly deceived. Now, when someone with great power, even if they are not in a powerful position, but when, when someone is greatly deceived, and remember the mention of the, the sorcery, the witchcraft, soothsaying, and so on, when someone's deceived, as a result, they will become deceitful. 
especially as they live out their life and, and leadership in front of others. Remember, he was only 12 years old when he became king. So it's not too surprising that this has happened. In fact, Bible scholars and historians say King Manasseh likely murdered the prophet Isaiah. Do you know how he did that? By sawing him in two. Uh, it's not in the word, but I, many sources have, have said that. Sawing Isaiah, the prophet, in two. So, all right, now, if, if you're anything like me, uh, you might be thinking, all right, well, all right, what a rotten king. But, but even though I, I'm a sinner, at least, at least I haven't done that kind of evil in the sight of the Lord. At least I didn't live like King Manasseh. That's naturally what you might think when you read that. King Manasseh, he was a, uh, sort of an ancient version of, of Adolf Hitler, um, Joseph Stalin, uh, Chairman Mao, Saddam Hussein. Name, name your favorite infamous dictator. And that's, that's who King Manasseh was, the predecessor to all those kind of guys. So we can, we can throw King Manasseh under the bus you can, very easily if we liked him. We, we can play that sin comparison game. Oh, well, at least I didn't do that because we're really good at doing that. I know I am anyway. I know I can say, well, at least I'm not doing that kind of thing there. Um, it's easy for us to say that. At least I didn't, for example, put altars up for other gods for worship like King Manasseh did. Okay, well, let's think about that. Is there something in your life, anything, that you know you will occasionally allow to become more important than God? Maybe it doesn't go full-blown like we saw King Manasseh do, but... I can give you a list a mile long of things that I have idolized at different times in my life or that I might still struggle with in my own life. Things I put that are more important to God. That's what King Manasseh did. I would imagine that's true for many of us, if not all of us. We allow the things in our life to be, to be more important than our Lord and Savior. I'm reminded of it every morning, just like we got through with, uh, as we dedicate the first hour, Sunday morning, first hour of the week, of this meeting to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we prepare to take the, the bread and drink the cup. Hey, for me, it's often a time of, of real deep reflection and conviction. I'll sit there and sometimes I'll just pray all the way through it. Lord, what did I think about all this week instead of you? I don't know if you're the same, but that's, that's what I'm doing a lot during that hour. We may not be putting up altars, but we all struggle with idols in our lives. So Manasseh's father, I mentioned, was was the God-fearing king Hezekiah. However, but however Manasseh was raised under his father, he eventually, whatever happened, it meant Manasseh eventually deceived himself, then, as I said, became deceitful as a king and led the nation of Judah astray. Remember, it says he seduced Judah. He got them to buy into the stuff he was doing. But in looking at Manasseh's list of terrible deeds, um, we still might say, all right, well, at least I didn't sacrifice my children as an offering to a false god. Boy, what a, what a horrible, cruel parent King Manasseh was, putting his own children through the fire. At least I didn't kill my own children. Or at least I didn't, as I read from 2 Kings, at least I didn't shed innocent blood all over Jerusalem. Let's think about let's, let's zoom out a little bit here and talk about this, about shedding innocent blood all across a nation. How about us as a nation, as the United States? As a nation right now, we, we might say that we're not living as brutally as, as King Manasseh's Judah was or the way King Manasseh treated the nation of Judah during his reign. Let's think for a moment, though, about the, the, the horrible topic, and I don't want to like to do this, but the horrible topic of abortion for a moment. It's been such an ongoing part of our, of our culture. For, I think, 45 years it's been legal now, something like that. And, and as a nation, I'm not talking individual, but as a nation, we've become somewhat desensitized overall to how horrible it is. It's just part of our culture, all right? And, and we'd love to see it the abortion abolished, but 
it is what it is, and it's still there. And the laws seem to be making it even more acceptable all the time. But hopefully, as believers, we're, we're nowhere near being as desensitized about abortion. But as a nation as a whole, I don't think we're a whole lot different in allowing that to happen from the, you know, um, from the government on down. Uh, not a whole lot different than how Judah was during Manasseh's reign. If he was the one that allowed it, though, our government allows it too. If we really want to take a hard look at what he was allowing as a king. So, but let's, back on an individual personal level, though, we can very easily, though, rationalize our own sin as not being as bad as someone else's. We tend to, we tend to find it easy to do that. I want to borrow a line. That, this must have stuck with me. One of the few things that, until I listened to the CDs or tapes, the one, one of the things I really remember about what Nate Bramson said last summer at the Yosemite conference was this. He said, when all you do is compare your sins to someone else's, does this help you draw closer to Christ? Well, he hit, the, he hit the nail on the head with that. I heard that. Yeah, he's absolutely right. No, you don't draw closer to Christ if all you do is think of your own sin in comparison to someone else's. The question really is right now, do, do you want to focus on your sin or do you want to focus on your Savior? Are you drawn closer to real, true, heartfelt repentance when you fall into that trap of merely comparing the severity of your sins to someone else's, like King Manasseh, for example. Whether it's his sin, whether it's King Manasseh's sins or not, are, are we led to repentance when all we do is point fingers at someone else's sin? We're, we're just not. Uh, there, there are a lot of things that can be learned from the story of King Manasseh. I want to bring out a, a, a few points and, and try and drive them home. Um, I began by talking about the idea, as I started, of, of being truly sorry for an offense and the idea of how ridiculous a forced apology can be. See, it's, it's one thing to say you're sorry, whether it's forced or not. It's another to be truly sorrowful in your heart. But I believe it's yet a third and, and far different thing to be repentant. Repentance is different. True repentance is a lot more than just spoken words. And I don't believe it's something that your parents can train you to be. I talked about that a little bit. Um, parents can be tremendously influential, but the decision is left to the child. True repentance has an, an unmistakable sincerity to it. It, it. it may be visible, but it can also merely be the position of one's heart. And we're going to see that in the story as we continue. But you definitely know true repentant action when you see it. Eventually, Eventually, in someone's life, repentance is something that is, is shown, it's displayed, it's executed for everyone to see, um, especially when it's on a nationwide scale, all right? And, and it, it, is, it is convincing. Uh, there is a sincerity to it, and people say there is something different now about that person. They must have made a decision. They have repented. Speaking of repent, um, let's turn to a very familiar passage in Matthew chapter 3 at this time. Matthew 3. You've read this before. Matthew 3, the story of John the Baptist. The famous words of John the Baptist as he begins, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First word out of his mouth. Opens up the mission for Christ the Lord to come. I, looked, I have an Amplified Bible at home. I'll, I'll go to it sometimes to just get the, the meaning of a word a little bit more. The Amplified Bible, uh, as far as repentance is concerned, says, um, think differently. Change your mind. Regret your sins and change your conduct. There's action there. 
whether it's in the mind or the heart or in, in what is actually seen. Think differently. Change your mind. Regret your sins and change your conduct. So that is Matthew 3. I'm just going to jump from, through a couple verses here. Matthew 3, starting verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he, John the Baptist, that is, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. That phrase, prepare the way of the Lord, we're not talking about a physical path or a sidewalk. It isn't like uh, Palm Sunday where, where they were, you know, where the Lord was coming through on the, on the donkey. No, prepare the way of the Lord was, was speaking of something different. John the Baptist was saying, prepare your heart because the Lord wants to come in. But that starts with being aware of some things, being aware of your sinful nature and having a heart that's willing to repent, a heart of repentance, not yet a lifestyle of repentance, not yet, but a heart of repentance. There's a difference, and I'm, I'm going to try and highlight that today, the difference between a, a repentant heart and a repentant lifestyle. I want to emphasize that today. Um, and and this, this passage, as it continues, jump to verse 6, we'll see that difference between repentant heart repentant actions. Verse 6 says, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. All right, well, now we're starting to see a decision made. Ah, I'm a sinner. I'm going to confess What's next? Jump to verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Start showing that you are repentant. That was, that was John the Baptist's message. So a repentant lifestyle follows. There's an order here. A repentant lifestyle follows a genuine decision of the heart to repent of one's sinful, evil ways. What was John the Baptist hoping to do? What was, what was his mission? He knew what the Lord's mission was, but what was his mission before the Lord Jesus came to offer forgiveness for all? He was, he was simply setting up. He was wanting people to look at their hearts and ask themselves, am I aware of my sin? Do I even realize I'm a sinner? All these things I do, do I realize they're sins? Am I ashamed of my sins? Do I realize they are not good? And thirdly, am I willing to run from my sins? Am I willing to turn from them 180 degrees and go a different direction? Let's go back now into the story of, of King Manasseh, back to 2 Chronicles 33. See, this story, it really isn't a story about idols, blasphemy, murder, or evil. That's part of it, and we need all that to have it set up. But it's really a story of a repentant heart. We haven't gotten to that part yet, but let's continue. I'm in verse 10, 2 Chronicles 33, verse 10. You might want to kind of keep a finger in there for now, you know. Um, and the Lord did what? Gave up on Manasseh and his people? doesn't say that. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters. You know you're in trouble when the bronze fetters come out, right? And carried him off to Babylon. Now, when he was in affliction, King Manasseh implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty. Right? King Manasseh's begging, his plea, his, re his request in front of the Lord. The Lord received his supplication. Why, why did the Lord do that? He knows Manasseh has a repentant heart. He knows he is being sincere. He's stuck. He's bound in those bronze fetters. He's on his knees there. God sees his sincerity. Manasseh hasn't had a chance to prove any repentance, but the Lord is looking at his heart. 
just to finish that up, and says, and brought him back, brought King Manasseh back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew, knew without a doubt that the Lord was God. Now, there's a difference shown there, or difference or a distinction shown there between forgiveness offered and forgiveness received. It's, it's a two-way street. Don't miss what God himself initiated in verse 10 of the passage. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to, and to who else? And his people, but they would not listen, not at first. But regardless, the Lord reached out. The Lord initiated it. Manasseh didn't say, you know what, I've been really goofing up here. Lord, let's, let's start talking. No, he didn't start the conversation. The Lord reached out. He initiated a restoration. He, the Lord, attempted to get in touch with Manasseh and his people. So the Lord was trying to get Manasseh's attention. And why? To, to condemn him eternally for his evil ways? To, uh, one, might, one might think so. If you don't read the rest of the story, oh, yeah, he's finally going to punish him. Yeah. Not if our God is a long-suffering, gracious, and forgiving, and loving God. That's not why he's trying to get in touch with Manasseh. That's not why he's reaching out to him. Well, what did the Lord God do with, do with Manasseh? He stopped him. So that's enough. Enough Manasseh. He, he bound him, and he afflicted him. And why did he afflict him? Was he, was he punishing him? Was he trying to hurt him? No, he, he afflicted King Manasseh just enough to get his attention. Just enough to get his attention. Just like a parent needs to discipline their child. That's enough. Stop. And let's stop right there. He afflicted King Manasseh and got his attention. But after that, what do we see Manasseh do? Retaliate? No, we see him respond. He's responding while God then waited patiently and listened to this humbled man. Again in verse 12, now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly. He didn't say he just considered what the Lord had to say. He humbled himself greatly in front of God. What's the first thing God does after Manasseh humbled himself greatly? Does the scripture say, and, and God judged Manasseh and punished him severely so that he would be even more aware and more ashamed of his evil, sinful past? And then God told Manasseh, that he had to earn his own way back to his favor. That's not what it says. That's not what it says at all. In fact, quite the opposite, right? Verse 13, he, the, the Lord, received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back. I think the New Testament version of that is that he bought us back, right? But what did, what did, what did uh, the Lord do here? He brought him back. He restored him back to Jerusalem, into his kingdom. And what's the beautiful, glorious result of that? Then Manasseh knew Manasseh knew, not hoped, right? It wasn't that Manasseh had a, had a funny feeling now that the Lord was God. Manasseh knew in his heart that the Lord was God. There's been a restoration. There's a relationship there now. I think that's a gospel verse hidden in the Old Testament. You sit and dwell upon that. Yeah, that's exactly what happened, a restoration of a relationship there initiated by the Lord. There's no judgment, no, no confusion on God's part. God knows what Manasseh wants. He's understood what he said. There's no waiting. There is now no condemnation upon King Manasseh. Let's ask this question now, though. Did King Manasseh have to prove himself with repentant actions before God would respond favorably with his forgiveness? Did Manasseh have to do anything like that? Did he have to prove to everybody where he was bound in prison? He didn't have to do that. No, just a change in Manasseh's heart was all that the Lord needed to see. And, and, the, and the Lord can see that. We can't, but the Lord can. The Lord can see a repentant heart, and he knows if, if we're sincere. So Now, we know, though, we know there are many, many people in this world 
who, who read that passage and read about that forgiveness and have a very difficult time with seeing God restore Manasseh so fully, so quickly, so completely. Um, in, in doing some study for this, I, found, I actually found an article online where the author suggested that the forgiveness part of Manasseh's story had to be made up due to how much evil he had done in his life. There's no way God would have forgiven that. A, a newspaper article said that. Like, what? Click off. Okay. Um, but there is something hard to comprehend about that kind of forgiveness, isn't there? It, it's, it does seem unfathomable that God would still forgive this evil, deceitful man who had done such things on such a nationwide scale. It's hard, it's, it's hard to fathom it. But only if we don't know how much God loves to forgive. And if we stop right here, we don't get to see the full power of forgiveness. This is when it gets good. Let's go further and see Manasseh's repentant heart now have a chance to be put into action. Same passage, 2 Chronicles 33, go to verse 14. So after this, he, Manasseh, of course, built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and it enclosed Ophel, and he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He's doing some work here. He's, he's making a difference now. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. He's, made it, he's had an influence upon his nation. Now remember, God forgave a truly repentant man who, who had committed evil, who had been deceitful on a huge nationwide scale. People are seeing King Manasseh do all this deceit and evil. God forgave a man who had turned his heart from his evil ways and humbled himself before his God. So now we've, we've seen repentance, we've seen forgiveness. And now we're seeing restoration. We're seeing Manasseh have a chance to say, I'm going to get this right. And the incredible thing that stands out to me through in, in this story is that God was ready to forgive Manasseh long before Manasseh was ready to receive God's forgiveness. But God didn't give up on him. And Manasseh was forgiven even before he had the chance to follow up on his repentant heart with visible, good, repentant actions that the whole nation of Judah could also see. When you think about it, you're like, oh, yeah, well, why wouldn't God have picked him out and, and, and reached out to him? Because if he does turn around, the whole nation's going to see it, and that's what happened. It's incredible. Interesting how God picks certain people for these things. Well, you know what? The same, the same was true for me as far as the repentant heart and then repentant action, and it's true for any of us who have reckoned with our own sins and accepted what Christ did for us on the cross. Part of my own testimony, I don't have time to share it today, but part, part of my testimony is that God forgave me uh, in my heart long before I changed my lifestyle to show him I was serious about my decision for him. My repentant actions followed my repentant heart, and by several years, I might add, as well. But the Lord forgives the heart, then he allows us to show repentant action, just as he did with King Manasseh. So let's look at a much more... Kind of a more, I, I thought, I, let's, let's get a more recent type of situation to think about that, that might help us think a bit deeper about God's incredible forgiveness shown in the story of King Manasseh. And I'm going to go to kind of a, a dark area for a bit in order to, to drive home some of these truths that, that we've seen in the story of Manasseh, something a little bit more modern. I researched the, the depressing and miserable topic of 
mass school shootings, of which just seem to keep happening. Wikipedia had a list of 130 of these incidents listed out. I didn't know there had been anywhere near that many. But listed there was Sandy Hook Elementary, Columbine High School. I think that was the big one that really got everyone's attention. Virginia Tech, um, about what, five years ago or so. Parkland, Florida, I think just a couple years ago. About a, a whole bunch of others I'd never heard of. Had the list of the perpetrators. A lot of them takes their own lives in the incident. It, it's ugly. It's not, it's not fun to, to look at or think about. But I, I found out in, in researching this, there are, there are two living U.S. mass school shooters, perpetrators, um, two actual men um, who, are, who are no longer incarcerated. They've done their time in prison, and they're out. They're free right now. Um, Mitchell Johnson, at age 13, and Andrew Golden, at the age of 11, were the gunmen in a 1998 school shooting at a, at a middle school in jo Jonesboro, Arkansas. I hadn't even heard about this one. They killed five people. Again, they were age 13 and 11. Now, do you remember how old King Manasseh was when he became king? He was 12. That's the average of 11 and 13. Quick math right there. All right. uh, these shooters, Mitchell Johnson and Andrew Golden, they're, they're in their mid-30s now, and they were released from prison when they were 21. Okay, so let's, let's suppose now. I want to think, let's think about forgiveness here. Um, Suppose that either of these guys would now like to publicly acknowledge that they're truly remorseful over this incident. Uh, suppose they say they're sorry to the families of the victims and, and they'd like to be forgiven by anyone who, who would be willing to forgive them. Why do so many people still find it incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to immediately forgive someone for an offense like this? You kind of question the sincerity. And we tend to think about those innocent school children and, and their families, right, that are still living out, you know, that horrible incident. We also think of where the deceased are going to be spending eternity. Suppose further now, though, that either of these perpetrators, these two killers, who had, when they were 11 and 13, what if they now had the opportunity somehow to show a true, sincere, convincing repentance through a changed lifestyle? And they're able to show that to the public and to the families of the victims. Somehow they could reach out and do that. Suppose we could see that they've changed. You can actually see that and say, oh, those, those guys are different now. They did that when they were kids, and now I see that they're different. To further think about this, what, what if you were related to one of the actual victims? Maybe you're a parent of one of those kids in that, from that incident. My question is this, and I've said all that so I can ask the question, would you want to forgive these men? Is that something you would want to do? Or... Is that something that you don't want to think about? And I ask that question because I want to say this. It seems like the answer to that kind of question, what I want to forgive someone like that, all depends on whether or not we have a really true understanding of the meaning and the enormous power of forgiveness. It's a powerful, powerful thing. Do we really get what forgiveness means? See, our, our ability to forgive as humans in our own strength, left to our own decision, without seeking the Lord. Our, our ability to forgive that way is far inferior to God's ability and desire to forgive, is it not? There's no comparison. So a question I, I challenge all of us to consider, I'd like to bring this up this morning, something to think about. Are you struggling to find the strength to forgive someone? Maybe it's difficult because you're trying to do it in your own strength and you haven't really sought the Lord on that. So Lord, I need to forgive someone, but I can't do it. But can you do it with me?
Can you, can you change my heart? Can I be someone who is able to forgive just like you have, Lord? When we understand God's desire to forgive, we find it easier to forgive. We, we actually find it possible to forgive, even for the worst type of offense, even for something private or personal, you know, maybe between a couple. And if we don't try to see forgiveness through God's perspective, we'll tend to remain bitter and unforgiving, and that can go on and on and on. But what is God's perspective? We've read about it with King Manasseh, but how does God view each of us, whether we're still unrepentant sinners or actually truly living a life dedicated to him? How does he view us? How does he view forgiveness? We read about how the Lord reached out to King Manasseh. Was he done with him? Did he, did he, did he go and try and punish him? No, he reached out because he wanted to forgive him. He sought him out. He bound him and he stopped him to get his attention. Manasseh, I want to talk to you. I want to forgive you. I think it's very true to say that we as humans cannot see anyone else's heart but our own. And sometimes we struggle to see our own heart, don't we? We tend to need to see actions. As humans, we need to see actions or a lifestyle change to be convinced of true repentance by anyone. Sometimes we need to see our own repentance lived out for us to convince ourselves, yeah, I really am repentant because now I'm living this out. That's why, for example, a, a loss of trust between a child and a parent often takes time to restore, right? The parent has to kind of bound the child. No, you're going to come home by 10 p.m. for the next six months. You're not going to be able to be out till midnight until we restore some trust. It takes time. We need to see the action. But our omniscient Lord merely needs to look only at our heart, and he knows. He knows already before seeing any outward change in our lifestyle if our desire to seek his forgiveness is truly sincere. There's an order to it. A repentant heart is first, and then repentant actions. And this is why. Such that the repentance is done in his strength and not our own. The repentant heart will lead the way to the repentant action. God knows the heart. God created it. He created it to seek him. He knows if our hearts are repentant long before we have a chance to express repentance with a changed lifestyle of our own. And the more I've thought about this, the more I've studied this, I, I like it that way. It, all, it, it makes sense. I like the fact that I don't have to earn God's favor. I don't have to show him that I love him. He loves me. I repent. He works within us and does the rest. When I was saved by accepting Christ's forgiveness on the cross... My salvation resulted through only a decision in my heart. I was lying in bed. Uh, I didn't have a chance to show him I wanted to change my ways. He, he was patient enough to let me do that later. Um, but his heart was all that he needed. My heart was all that he needed. We can't forget, though, in this, in this life we live, and, we see, and we're going to see this with King Manasseh, my final point that I want to make here, there are still consequences to a sinful lifestyle, this side of eternity, in this life that we're still living here, lingering consequences that we, all, that we all still need to deal with and live with. Um, this was true for King Manasseh even after his repentance, and it's, it's written in Scripture for a reason. And I, I like the fact that we can still see the results of even after uh, King Manasseh has had his chance to repent, we get to see the, the consequences of his sin. The Lord forgives us, and he forgets us. Excuse me, and he forgets our sin. The Lord forgives us. He forgets our, forgets our sin Thankfully, all due to the full atonement by Christ's blood on the cross, but the consequences of our sins can still stick around and affect us while we live out the rest of this life. Easy example to use would be um, a drug dealer that may become a Christian in prison, uh, but that doesn't mean he's going to be released from prison the next day. He may have to serve a life term. Who knows? Um, 
he will still experience the consequences of his past sin. It may be health trouble. It may be all kinds of stuff. could be stuck in prison. Um, coming to Christ does not erase those, those temporary or, or temporal effects of sin, but rather our salvation, though. Thank God. Our salvation guarantees that we will not face the eternal consequences of sin. Amen to that. Let's see what the consequences, what, what, they, what they were for King Manasseh as we finish up this story. Um, I think, now jump, jump to verse 21 here in 2 Chronicles 33. So Manasseh gets older, he dies, he's shown his repentant lifestyle to the nation of Judah, and his son Amon takes the throne. And verse 21 says, Amon was 22 years old, when he was still young, but much, you know, 10 years older than King Manasseh was when he took the throne. Amon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned only two years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. For Amon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord, as his father Manasseh had humbled himself. But Amon trespassed more and more. He just kept spiraling into sin and kept going and going. See, Manasseh's original lifestyle, his sinful lifestyle, his evil ways had permanently affected his son. I would even say eternally affected his son. And just because Manasseh was converted by God's grace, just because Manasseh did repent, it wasn't enough to convince his own son to repent as well. It's a shame, isn't it? Consequences for a once horribly lived lifestyle. It's rubbed off on Manasseh's son. Sin does have its temporary consequences, but may we be reminded, may we be reminded, this is something I've really been reminded of in, after attending here for five or six years now, uh, that Christ died not only for our actual sins, but also for the shame, also for the guilt and the shame that we might still feel burdened to carry through our life because of our, formal, uh, our former sinful lifestyle. We do not have to carry the sin and the shame. That was nailed to the cross as well. So let me encourage you, leave it there. Don't carry your sin and your shame from your sins with you. Christ died for those as well. They are, they are done. When he said it is finished, that was for your sin, your guilt, your shame, everything that you might want to hold on to. Don't. Let it go. Let him have it. I want to end with a classic verse on, on repentance. This is a verse I was helping some um, Awana boys help memorize this past week. 2 Peter 3.9. A lot of you may know it by heart. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all, not most, all should come to repentance. I think Rod emphasized that this morning, praying for the, the cup. All, all should come to repentance. I don't, want to, I don't want to assume here today that everyone here has heard that verse before. I don't want to assume that everyone here today has responded favorably to that invitation that the Lord gives in that verse. I don't want to assume that. That verse, but that verse does not say that the Lord is going to have to think it over if you ask him for forgiveness. Yeah, let's think about this person's sin. I don't know. No, he doesn't do that. All right? He doesn't have to think it over. He keeps his promises. That's one of the truths in that verse. He keeps his promises. That verse also does not say that he's perfectly okay that some are going to choose to reject him. He doesn't, doesn't leave. He, he leaves us with an invitation, but he's not perfectly okay that some are going to choose to reject him. Again, it says, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All. Who does all include? Well, all includes King Manasseh. 
or anyone else who has committed such serious offenses against God on any kind of scale, against God and society even, that forgiveness seems like it can no longer be offered. No, all includes those people. All includes those people in our lives, and I can think of many in my life who are living so wild and so, so pridefully unaware of their sinful lifestyle that we may have given up on praying for them a long time ago. All includes those people. Let's not stop praying for those people who we look at and go, oh, I don't know, I don't know if they're ever going to want to come to the Lord. We cannot give up on those people. All includes the Apostle Paul, who approved of Stephen the martyr stoning and who wanted Christians to be persecuted and killed. You remember how it turned out for Paul, right? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All includes me. I hope you know, even if you know that you haven't truly repented in your heart for your sins yet, that all includes you. All includes you too. We're all invited to that verse. All right? It's, it's beautiful. All right? He doesn't leave anyone out. We're all invited in that verse. I think we better close in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your love toward us, your, your initiation of that love, your desire to save us, and your willingness to seek us out when we're not even thinking about turning to you. Thank you, Father, for your, your patience with us as you, as you clean up our lives, as we continue to, to show you that we love you. You're still patient with us. You go to those areas in our lives where we struggle. We thank you for your enormous heart of forgiveness, uh, shown and offered so beautifully by your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's in his name I pray. Amen.